0: Hello, my name's Justin LeCleu, and I'm here today with...
1: Will Sloan.
0: And you are listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're tackling a big subject that, as Will said right before we started recording, we've been preparing our whole lives for post-handover Hong Kong cinema. In
1: 1997, the colony of Hong Kong was returned by colonial Britain to mainland China. Now, this handover, which was announced in 1984, caused a great deal of concern among the city's artists and filmmakers. What would the notoriously repressive Chinese regime do for freedom in the arts? Also, How do you take this very advanced, uh, globalized city and join it with a largely agrarian economy that is the mainland. You know, what what would this even look like? And 1997 is when the handover happened. And it's also, I think, for folks like us, you know, fans of Hong Kong cinema, basically the end of Hong Kong being a really exciting uh, national cinema, if you will. Well,
0: I wouldn't go that far because people like Johnny Toe made their career post-handover, but it is, uh, you know, the death of a thousand cuts.
1: Now, I'm not here just to badmouth the People's Republic, because it's not all their fault. Although,
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, what what's that in the news? Oh, oh,
1: boy. Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong's ongoing existence as a film industry for a variety of reasons, basically, it owes its existence to the mainland at this point, And we can get into all the reasons why Hong Kong declined as a film industry. But in recent years, the mainland has essentially swallowed up hong kong's film industry it's swallowed up all of the key players from the golden age it's been hard to watch it's been depressing to watch but i mean i think we're also interested in this subject because since 1997 many interesting things have happened in hong kong sometimes because of sometimes in spite of various socio-political developments. And
0: when I said we've been preparing for this our entire lives, it means we've been watching the films coming out. I would follow obsessively what new Hong Kong cinema was right around the corner. But, you know, actually culturally, I don't think me and Will were uh, reading the tabloids or the news or anything like that, unless it affected the films that we were watching.
1: Before we get into what exactly happened in Hong Kong, Justin, can you briefly just explain to people, maybe this is their first episode, why do we love Hong Kong cinema so much, and particularly the Hong Kong cinema of the 70s, 80s, and early 90s? I
0: think that Hong Kong, out of all the world cinemas, gives us something that is so well defined when it comes to imagination. Imagination, creativity, the way that ideas can be presented on screen, especially within an action context, that anywhere else on the planet that is making cinema has eventually adopted the Hong Kong style because they know how to do it. They've always done it the best. And that also translates to their no-holds-barred outings in all sorts of genres and modes because there is a out-of-control and a full-contact kind of feel when it comes to the world of Hong Kong cinema.
1: Yeah, uh, no holds barred is a great way to say it. The action films, the comedies, the horror films, the erotic films, all the genre films are just so extreme. You know, whether it's uh, Jackie Chan putting his life on the line, or whether it's Anthony Wong um, cutting up a family and eating them in the untold story, (laughs) or, you know, then there's Hong Kong's art cinema, which is not quite as prolific as its popular cinema, but you've got Won Kar Wai you've got Stanley Kwan on doing extraordinary things
0: and it's also a very I mean it's weird to say it, like insular cinema scene all of the filmmakers work on each other's films it feels almost like a community that you don't really see in like North American cinema like in the biggest blockbusters that were coming out in the 90s directors would be taking supporting roles because that's just how it worked. Everybody knew everybody. They were all collaborating and jumping from project to project, wanting to outdo themselves. And if people want a good snapshot of that, I would highly recommend checking out the book Planet Hong Kong by David Boardwell because there are some just, you know, on the street, this is how it happens. Hong Kong movies, they have midnight premieres. They live or die based on that. And then sometimes they're thrown out of the cinema just so a new one can make way a couple days later.
1: Yeah. And Hong Kong is such a small and dense place. It comes across in these films, at least, like this real hothouse atmosphere. I remember watching Kirk Wong's triad film, Organized Crime and Triad Bureau. And it's almost gone down in my head as like the quintessential Hong Kong action movie. Not the best, but just the quintessential one. The way that it feels like, you know, it's it's all shot in the streets of Hong Kong. All these incredible gunfights, all this extraordinary action. It's not like they really had a lot of money for studio space in Hong Kong. Space is expensive. It was shot in all the real places. You see all this stuff unfolding in the streets of Hong Kong in this movie, and it almost feels like this, I don't want to say virus, it almost feels like this spirit, this energy that was going through these city streets for 20 or 25 years. So what happened to Hong Kong, you may be wondering. A lot of this I learned from David Bordwell's Planet Hong Kong, which you can get an updated version of on David Bordwell's website that covers the years after 1997. There were a number of big factors that led to its collapse. First of all, for many years, Hong Kong was a sort of Hollywood of the East in the sense that it supplied product for Taiwan, Malaysia, Indonesia, South Korea. That took a huge hit when there was a recession in the 90s across Asia that really uh, impacted this export market. But Even before that recession, many countries changed their quota and tariff policies in such a way that would be more hospitable to American films. So, one statistic I read is that in Taiwan, Hong Kong movies accounted for 47% of the box office in 1992. But by 1999, that number had fallen to 3%. And what happened in that time... You know, it wasn't just the quotas and tariffs, but also just the films themselves from Hollywood posed an immense competition. In Hong Kong, Jurassic Park and Speed were the number one box office hits of 1993 and 1994. And you can imagine a Hong Kong film going up against Jurassic Park.
0: God damn you, Steven Spielberg <laughs> and Jan de <laughs>
1: Those people. Monsters. Piracy was also a huge problem. Movies would suddenly be available on these cheap... Uh, Video on CDs.
0: VCDs. That's a popular video format that continues to thrive in like African countries where it's way cheaper to make a VCD than it is even a DVD at this point.
1: And not to mention internet downloads, which really hit in the 2000s. You've got a talent pool that is aging, like Jackie Chan or Chai Yun-Fat, or maybe they're looking west. Maybe they're dividing their time, you know, because they know the handover is going to happen. So they want to establish a presence in Hollywood. So you have all these filmmakers like John Woo, Ringo Lam, Choi Hark, Ronnie Yu, Stanley Tong, who are making Hollywood films. I mean, many stars stars stayed in Hong Kong, like Andy Lau and Tony Leung. But then there was the next generation of stars, which uh, wasn't so hot frankly you know like those those pop stars the twins
0: yeah i mean there were always pop stars like even uh, you know leslie chung was a pop star before he became a star but there wasn't it didn't seem to be the same creative influx or holding power that there was with people like chuo hark or even wong jing like those two names are the ones that just continue to make films and when they disappear it will just go away forever because i mean to my eyes again north american eyes there seems no one gets a handhold. There's a lot of mainland Chinese and even Hong Kong films coming out, but oftentimes it's a one and done because there is not the market to sustain anyone's career right now in the theatrical realm.
1: So I will now say how the rise of China happened because in the buildup to the handover, it looked like Hong Kong was going to be, again, the Hollywood of the East for China. It would be the export market. But China in the 90s, in an attempt to revive its own film industry instituted a quota policy that would allow a certain number of american films in every year <laughs> movies like true lies or titanic which Believe me, if, if you're in China and all you've been seeing for 50 years is the founding of the Republic, <laughs> you know, a movie like that, you are very excited to see Titanic. That policy built a whole chain of movie theaters with which China was then able to establish its own production firms, its own centralized uh, film office, and the culmination of that is Hero in 2002, starring Jet Li, which was a Chinese blockbuster that could compete with American blockbusters on their own terms.
0: And it's continued since then, right? And mainland Chinese blockbusters have been paving the way in North America, like uh, Yimu's The Great Wall, starring Matt Damon.
1: One of the things I learned from reading David Bordwell this week is that in 2004, China instituted some policies that made it easier, made it more viable to make mainland Hong Kong co-productions. So there would no longer be specifications on for instance, how many mainlanders had to be in the crew, or it was no longer the case that you have to have the film processed in the mainland. So all of a sudden, these ailing Hong Kong film companies got a big influx of opportunity. There was all this cash coming from the mainland. However, the catch is, these films are now subject to Chinese censorship. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh! Think of all the Hong Kong films you love. A movie like Wong Kar-wai's Happy Together it's not being made anymore.
0: There would be some export to the mainland market of our favorite films, and they would also have alternate endings because the bad guys can't get away in a mainland Chinese production. <laughs> so there's a lot of funny alternate versions of movies where in the last 30 seconds, it's like, oh, wait, no, the anti-hero, he actually died because he did bad things.
1: Obviously, there were a lot of like extreme exploitation movies that we love, like Ebola Syndrome or The Untold Story or Sex and Zen, movies like that with extreme extreme sex and violence, that obviously that's not going to be allowed in a mainland co-production. But then there are movies like Chinese Ghost Story, one of the real beloved classics of the 80s. Sorry, Will, no ghosts allowed. Exactly, too superstitious. Can't Can't make a ghost movie with mainland money. And
0: wait, we should point out as well that these censorship rules are not only very strict But also, the only way to get something approved is by sending in a script and then they will mail back a response to you. And there are no rules of how long it takes or when you'll get it back to the point that people like Johnny Toe has said, I cannot work in this system. It is untenable to plan something when you don't know what the response will be. And sometimes even when the film is done and you got everything approved up until then, it can still
1: be banned. Now, Johnny Toe is an interesting figure because he's probably... The greatest filmmaker, I mean, he was working before the handover, but he was the filmmaker who really came into his own after 1997, became a great internationally regarded artist. He's somebody who has had, at the very least, a two-pronged career, because he has a company called Milky Way in Hong Kong, through which he makes two kinds of movies. On the one hand, he makes very commercial, romantic comedies that are for the Hong Kong and I guess also probably the mainland market. Very, very safe films. And he also makes these crime films that are beloved by genre fans all over the world and shown at film festivals and that are less commercial in Hong Kong and are not allowed to be shown in the mainland. And He makes those movies because he makes enough money with his romantic comedies and with his mainland approved productions that he can indulge himself with with some of these more modest crime films.
0: I mean, I think that Johnny Toe, though, he does enjoy both forms, even though that they are extremes like love on a diet. Andy Lau is a guy in a fat suit and then he loses weight. (laughs) You can still see his style in it. It's not like he's a TV director that's phoning it in. But like I said, it slowly chipped away at him up until like he said he can't do it anymore. And the company's still running, but Johnny Toe only made a movie a couple years ago. And I was like, how did he get this made? And then doing a little bit more research, I was like, oh. It stars the son of a guy that's famously a triad
1: boss. One of his best movies is a movie that apparently he doesn't even really consider that personal a film, which is Drug War from 2013. And that's a film that is a Hong Kong mainland co-production. It is in the style, I suppose you could say, of his personal crime films. But the police are the heroes, and... You know, it's a fascinating movie to watch because it's very much like, how much can I get away with?
0: Yeah, I mean, it is a... Is this word I'm looking for satire or kind of deconstruction of the genre? That if you read the summary on paper, you'd be like, oh, this is okay. But it's about the way that it's executed. The fact that the villain of the picture gets a lethal injection and you just stay on him suffering and screaming in the last moments of the film. That's
1: right. The film ends, the whole drama is resolved, and you've spent the whole film with this villain. You've even kind of come to like him. It's a two-hander, him and the police guy. But then at the end of the film... There's just a completely unsentimental execution scene because, uh, well, you know, he gets executed. I don't know if I would call it subversive exactly because I I think obviously the mainland censors looked at it and said, this is good. This is fine. We approve of this but you can still tell how Johnny Toe feels about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, I feel like it's subversive just to the extremes that it goes. Basing yourself on the text of, that Johnny Toe had delivered to mass audiences before, like something along the lines of PTU, which I feel that everybody, when it came out, we were like, oh, what a cool movie. You know, Cops, One Long Night, Gotta Solve That Mystery. And rewatching it uh, last week, I'm like, oh man, these cops are awful, just terrible people. And we're following them trying to solve this mystery, but it looks so cool. So he can have his cake and eat it too.
1: I know that we both watched some movies for this episode. I do want to just like run through almost like a verbal Rorschach, just some of the key movies that have come out since 1997 and maybe get your take on them. First of all, one of the huge hits... One of the most influential Hong Kong films of this millennium, Infernal Affairs from 2002. What do you think of that you one? You
0: know what? I'm not a big fan. <laughs> really? I remember seeing it theatrically when Sinsu showed it, and I went, oh, this is okay. I don't know what like kind of rubs me the wrong way uh, about it, even though it has two powerhouse performances from Andy Lau, the man who seemingly has lived a million lives, and Tony Long, one of the greatest actors living. But there's something about Andrew Lau's style that's so stiff. And it just doesn't work for me.
1: I'll just let you folks know that Infernal Affairs was the movie that was remade in Hollywood as a little movie called The Departed. See,
0: when Infernal Affairs ended, I'm like, you know what this needs? A rat. (laughs) If I just got that (laughs) rat to clarify the themes of this picture, I'd be golden.
1: The style of the two films is very different, though. I mean, the Martin Scorsese movie is long and expansive and feels kind of lived in. But Infernal Affairs takes its temperature from the glass and steel architecture of Hong Kong. You know, it's very tight and concise and just, just cool.
0: And I should point out, I do enjoy the second part, which is a prequel to Infernal Affairs. And the third part, which is baffling more than anything else, where it's like, almost feels like outtakes from the other films, just because the commercial necessity to make one more film with these actors. Infernal
1: Affairs was interesting because It came at a period when Hong Kong movies in Hong Kong were really being clobbered at the box office by American films and so this movie comes along it's like an old school crime picture with two big stars and it's very local so I think there was a general sense around it like oh look look like we can still make this happen this can still happen maybe it'll happen again
0: Shaolin Soccer from 2001 I think the ultimate Hong Kong film for me and you
1: yeah well I mean Shaolin Soccer what can you say about it it's it's an interesting film because Stephen Chow throughout the 90s was regarded as almost this untranslatable figure. He is a strictly local phenomenon and he was huge in Hong Kong. They would call him the Jim Carrey of Hong Kong but so much of his comedy was, you know, puns and local references and other things that were untranslatable. However, this movie was clearly aimed like so many big Hong Kong movies were at that time, partly at the West. And so it's much more about special effects and big energetic physical gags. Here's one. Have you ever seen this movie? Because I haven't. The Storm Riders. Oh,
0: indeed I have. I mean, that's from the same director as Infernal Affairs, Andrew Lau.
1: <laughs> this was Hong Kong's first big special effects movie. It's first big CGI spectacular. One
0: of the first Hong Kong movies that I ever got, and I owned it on VCD.
1: Is it any good? (laughs) No,
0: it's not. It stars Ekin Cheng, a Hong Kong star, pop star that has had no uh, exposure in North America. And I think it's Leon Lai as well, another pop star. Listen, every star in Hong Kong is a pop star. And what's notable about it is those big special effects extravaganza, which didn't even really look that hot back then, but led to a whole wave of those types of pictures as, uh, you know, very diminishing returns when they're like, look what we can do. We can expand the wuxia into the wildest
1: thing imaginable. I know that when we got really into Hong Kong films, You and I, there was still a general sense, or at least it was reported in the West as this is still such a dynamic film industry. The West was reporting about it as if it was still the early 90s. And I remember like going to, you know, Toronto Chinatown and seeing some of the current movies and getting a sense that something was askew. But I remember 2004 felt like this year, at least from my blinkered and ill informed Western perspective, that like it almost felt like this last. Gasp of a certain kind of Hong Kong energy.
0: Let me guess. Because there was Kung Fu Hustle. Yes. There was 2046. Yes. And there was New Police Story. Those
1: are the three. Those are the big three, each, each of which is. Uh, headlined by a big golden age talent, uh, Stephen Chow, Wong Kar Wai, and our man, Jackie Chan. Those
0: films are also representative of A Last Gasp because it's not as good, or even, you know, halfway as good as their best thing, but you could still see it there. There's still that passion. Well, actually, you know what? I'm just speaking of New Police Story because Kung Fu Hustle is great. And so is 2046. Just New Police story's not good.
1: New Police Story, I remember watching it and being like, this is good.
0: I mean, you watch it now and you're like, this
1: is great. Well, now I watch it. It's like Jackie can still move. Like it looks like Golden Age compared to what he's doing now. He still seemed to care. I'm glad we brought up New Police Story because in 2001, Jackie Chan made The Accidental Spy, which was his last film, I think for Golden. Harvest, the studio that he worked with ever since the 70s. And then, you know, he made Rush Hour 2, he made Shanghai Nights, he made all these American movies. And then in 2004, he comes back to make a strictly local production, New Police Story. And I just feel like in those three years, so much changed because Holden Harvest went out of business. And New Police Story was produced by a new firm called Emperor Motion Picture Group, which was this firm that held a lot of different holdings, you know, from newspapers to, uh, I don't know, jewelry shops to this and that. And it's a movie that, in addition to Jackie Chan, is full of all these young pop stars, these pop stars who emerged since The Accidental Spy three years earlier. And it feels like, like, it's the first, like, old man Jackie movie where he's like, "Uh, I guess I gotta have some young blood with me, right?
0: But it was also right on the cusp of the crossover pop star could have a career still having a chance because man you had all of them in this movie you had charlene Choi, who was one of the twins you had andy on who had a bit of a career afterward you had nicholas tse who continues to work we just saw him in donnie Ann's roaring fire and daniel Wu as well who was able to make a career out of it just recently starring in the amc tv show which is like the wuxia hong kong action show into the badlands
1: another movie that i should bring up and i'm out of chronology here because this one came out in 2000 but it's crouching tiger hidden dragon which was only a modest hit in hong kong but it was a hong kong co-production a co-production with america as a matter of fact uh sony pictures classics put up a lot of the money and it sort of set up a model for a certain kind of international co-production that would continue for the next decade or so hey
0: guys you like crouching tiger hidden dragon eh? how about the banquet you want to watch the banquet (laughs) This
1: was also choreographed by UAP. The the Promise by Chen Cage. Oh, The Promise. (laughs) Or frankly, The Myth starring Jackie Chan. The model is you get stars from all over Asia, somebody from Japan, somebody from Hong Kong, somebody from the mainland, uh, and you get funding from all over the world. And you've got your international distribution, and then you roll the camera. And Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, obviously a wonderful movie. It was actually written by a white American. So there's a certain kind of- James Seamus. Yeah, a certain kind. of like general tao's chicken quality to it
0: <laughs> and i believe that even chinese audiences were a little bit perturbed by the fact that uh charing fats
1: mandarin wasn't that hot obviously nobody noticed here we did watch a couple of movies this week uh, one of them is the quintessential handover movie it came out in 1997 and it was a new kind of hong kong movie at the time an independent film shot in sync sound
0: crazy shot in
1: sync sound which was unusual even as late at this point and A lot of movies were not shot with sync sound because, frankly, the sound of the traffic from the streets was just too heavy. So it was easier to dub it later. Mm -hmm.
0: And you can hear it in this film, Made in Hong Kong,
1: which came out in 1997. And by the way, one of the reasons this movie was made was because of the benevolence of Andy Lau, one of the biggest stars in Hong Kong who produced... You know, as a producer, funded many of the important films that have come out since 1997, including films like Gallants.
0: Good on Andy Lau, who is some kind of godly being who cannot even be stopped, even though he breaks his back.
1: Now, I love this movie made in Hong Kong. It's a movie about being young and angry and directionless in a shitty neighborhood in Hong Kong.
0: Until you and everyone that you care about is dead. (laughs)
1: That's right. Uh, The main character is this callow youth, this uh, young man who. Doesn't know what to do. Doesn't know what he wants to do. One of the only options that's really realistic and available to him is to be a lackey for the triads.
0: I think this film is fascinating because it seemingly represents the fly-by-your-pants nature of Hong Kong cinema, and what made you and me fall in love with it, like a script written on the fly like at first you're like oh is it going to be about that he tries to give a letter to this girl that he sees commit suicide right in front of him and then he goes and sees the people she was trying to contact nope that's not what it is about anymore now it's about the star played by sam lee just joining the
1: triads and one of the things that he tries to do to redeem himself is i guess you could say he falls in love with this uh teenage girl who has a has an illness she has to get a kidney transplant and she's she's gonna die if she doesn't get one so this guy this young man he wants to fix himself he wants to become become a savior figure for her spoiler alert unfortunately he does not
0: i was fascinated at how this represented like a certain period of hong kong cinema like the fact that you have sam lee who would then go on to become like a star in hong kong cinema like he just became a name guy from most people, he's one of the dudes in Biozombie, which was like a big, you know, crossover hits for Hong Kong slash horror fans of the 2000s. You also have a one-time actor, the woman who's sick, Nike Hu Chai, who just did this movie. I believe she maybe did one little thing and then disappeared completely. And then another one of the main roles played um, politically incorrectly <laughs> by uh, the protagonist friend, who seems to have a few mental problems by Wenders Lee, who is not actually an actor. He's an editor. He's edited over like 80 movies in Hong Kong,
1: including like really big stuff. I like that this movie captures a certain mood, a certain tone in Hong Kong at the time. I mean, this sounds really hack to say, but uh, I happen to know that it has been interpreted as a parable of like a directionless colony that doesn't know what its future is. Uh, But beyond that, I like how there's just this constant presence of Western cultural imperialism. I mean, in in every room that everyone is in, there's always a poster for like My Own Private Idaho, or a poster of Johnny Depp, or Woody Harrelson in Natural Born Killers, all of these Western icons are just looming over everyone in these shitty Hong Kong apartments on the year of the handover. And nobody, nobody quite knows what direction they're going.
0: It's funny that it's so representative in title and feel and just the way that it plays out as like the first step of the post handover, when really it's about like the death of any of the these ideas like this could be the final film before Hong Kong cinema just ended completely and it would be the perfect final note it even ends in the giant graveyard so representative of Hong Kong that you see in so many movies
1: right like dangerous encounter of the first kind for instance I mean
0: Choi Hark man he's the main swallowed up by the post handover that all of his film for like mm, the first uh, two decades before 1997 are so you know uh, subversive or commenting on that whole idea of what will happen when China finally takes over, sometimes very subtly, like, oh, the villain just wears um, red the entire time, and sometimes a little bit more on the nose. But... He tried to go to Hollywood after before the handover, making two Jean-Claude Van Damme films, and then he came back to Hong Kong and he was swallowed
1: up by the mainland machine. Yeah, and if people don't know who Choi Hark is, he started his career as a sort of radical filmmaker, making these very angry and confrontational and political films like We're Going to Eat You. The
0: most political martial arts James Bond parody cannibal film you will ever see. And
1: then without giving up his edge exactly, he became the Steven Spielberg of Hong Kong. Hong Kong, making films like Once Upon a Time in China and Peking Opera Blues, big extravagant special effects films. A Zoo Warriors of the Magic Mountain, in fact, was kind of the first big effects film. Like he brought in some of Spielberg's crew to come help him shoot it. But then, as you say, in the late 90s, he was one of the many Hong Kong filmmakers who tried to make a go of it in Hollywood, didn't quite work out. And ever since the handover you know he continued in hong kong as an a-level director making big budget films but you could see him struggling films like zoo warriors his sequel to his uh, earlier movie you know didn't really catch on neither did uh, black mask 2 city of masks
0: hey it caught on in my heart i'm more saddened by the way that he just burned out and you see the movies that he's putting out now like or even the ones that he produces like the climbers or journey to the the west demon strikes back and they're anonymous mainland chinese blockbusters that could have been directed by anyone i mean
1: the fact that he produced the climbers which is a shitty just like nationalistic propaganda film about like the first chinese climbing team to ever conquer mount everest absolute dog shit and the fact that the man who directed dangerous encounter first kind directed it or produced it i mean ugh. Depressing. But we watched one of his movies this week from that awkward transition period. We watched Time and Tide from 2000.
0: And what I'm fascinated about with Time and Tide is the fact that it's Troy Harkin is most hyperkinetic to the point that it's exhausting, (laughs) that the film should be watched in chunks. Otherwise, it'll be like, oh, too much sugar. No more candy, please.
1: Yeah. So Time and Tide is kind of a crime movie. I'm not even going to bother getting into the plot. Who cares? Well,
0: it's very easy. Nicholas Tse, the man that Jackie Chan handed the reins over to, stars as a barman who impregnates A lesbian woman (laughs) during a...
1: Justin, you said this was easy. You said this was easy. It's not. I got it.
0: During a drunken night. So he becomes a security detail led by Anthony Wong. There's also a Taiwanese assassin that he befriends. And they go on wacky adventures.
1: Uh, Yeah, they go on wacky adventures. There are double crosses. They find themselves at odds, etc.
0: I was not surprised to hear Troy Hark say in the commentary track, Oh, the first cut of this was four hours long. And it's like, you don't say!
1: This movie got a lot of its funding from Sony Pictures. So it was an attempt at a crossover hit. Uh didn't quite catch on either in Hong Kong or in the United States.
0: Too much. Too much, uh, Choi. I
1: mean, I know you love this one. I know that a lot of people love this one actually. I I don't know, it so much of it is so good. There's so much action. Obviously Choi Hark is a master of the craft. Uh, I do find this movie a bit exhausting. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's fine. You know, we all turn into grandpas one day, Will.
1: You know, I say that and I feel bad for saying that because it has so many incredible scenes like when they're at that big apartment complex and they're like going down a rope from one floor to the next and the camera just fucking follows them. I
0: think the camera follows them out the window. You see a guy jump out and the camera runs out and like follows him down a couple of floors all in one take. Yeah,
1: people should check out this movie. It's interesting because... It's clearly aimed at the West to some degree. So you can see Choi Hark blending together a lot of national influences. You can see stuff from obviously like a lot of John Woo and also Wong Kar Wai aesthetics are in here. There's a lot of stuff that looks like Chungking Express, as well as a lot of stuff from Japan and a lot of stuff from, you know, Hollywood, like Matrix style stuff is in here.
0: And you can still read some, you know, commentary into it, like the fact that the hero never really gets a real gun. He's always using a fake gun. There's even uh, a the last train from mainland China plays an important part at the end of the picture. So he's still thinking about this stuff and trying to put it into the films that he's making before it just gets ripped out of him because he wanted to continue making movies.
1: You know you and me. I mean, whenever he has a new movie out, you and I will go see it at at the Young and Dundas Cineplex.
0: I mean, the fact that his next film is one that he was clearly forced to make and that he's co-directing with Chen Kai and Dante Lam oh man
1: Dante Lamb that man's a menace
0: oh yeah I mean that's a guy that thrived (laughs) uh, post-handover the
1: last movie we watched is another independent film a movie that was made in 2010 strictly as a local production when new censorship laws were instituted in Hong Kong recently I saw people say, well, what does this mean for this person's films? The filmmaker is Pang Ho Chung, and the film is Love and a Puff. Uh, Pang
0: Ho Chung is another guy that actually started post-Handover 1999. He was a novelist. He wrote Full-Time Killer, which was then turned into a Johnny Toe film. And he wrote a bunch of scripts before, you know, just kind of building his way up with his pictures until Love and a Puff was a massive hit because it delivered something that didn't really exist, which was a kind of, you know, uh, unassuming, straight-ahead, romantic comedy that directly represented Hong Kong as a place and its people who are complicated and all over the place. Just the fact that the character Smoke throughout the movie got the film a Category (laughs) 3.
1: Category 3 is the Hong Kong equivalent of, like, an X rating. (laughs) The historical context for this film is that the Hong Kong government in 2007 instituted a ban on indoor smoking apparently uh, starting in 2007 there was this new phenomenon of all these groups of people who would be smoking together in alleyways outside their place of work so this movie represented that phenomenon for the first time and these smoking circles became sort of communal spaces and in this movie we encounter smokers from all walks of hong kong life but the main characters are cherry played by miriam young who sells beauty products and Jimmy played by Sean, Yu, who works in advertising and they have a very low key romance that is sparked through these sort of smoking encounters. And the film chronicles their relationship over the course of just a week.
0: And it chronicles Hong Kong as well. Cause you know, one of their main topics of conversation is you know the hong kong architecture at one point they're like you know what you never see any aliens in the city buildings are too tall
1: i gather from reading about this movie that it is a very local film and that there's a lot conveyed in the cantonese dialogue that wouldn't mean a lot to us even so there's still plenty to enjoy in the film i mean it has a lot of light comedy and the romance is nicely textured and the leads have a lot of chemistry and it has a certain like rough around the edges quality that's kind of nice yeah
0: peng ho chung is a filmmaker who while he's been able to kind of thrive in Hong Kong he's never actually had to kind of like move to the mainland blockbuster territory he made another category three film called vulgaria about people shooting pornography that it was not a big hit but very well received critically and he was able to spin uh, Love in a Puff into a, like, Before Sunrise-like trilogy with Love in the Buff and Love Off the Cuff coming, you know, a couple years after each other. And he was also someone that was very direct with the kind of economical place that Hong Kong was with a film called Dream Home, which was about a woman going around killing people from for an apartment.
1: Something that I don't really have much experience with but that i've heard from uh, learned folks who do is that over the last 10 or 15 years hong kong has had a very vibrant independent film scene there have been a lot of people you know there have been festivals in hong kong with micro budget films that of course are not at all bound by mainland censorship restrictions that may be changing though ever since the protests, the democracy protests that happened in 2019, the mainland has started to really clamp down, instituting new censorship restrictions in Hong Kong. So, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to Hong Kong's independent and local filmmaking. I don't know what's going to happen to Hong Kong's classic films. What will happen to movies like The Untold Story? Uh, it's an open question. Well,
0: hold on to that Blu-ray that you have from Unearthed Films. <laughs> I think that what will happen to the filmmakers who are currently working uh, within that system is that they'll probably just have to retire. Even someone like Pang Ho-Chung, who is as pure as Hong Kong can be, defended China on one of their social media services, which led one of the main actors that he works with, Chapman To, from saying, you are already super rich. Why are you saying this? Even after that, Pang Ho Chung supposedly could not get a movie off the ground and has moved to
1: Canada. Well, we should have him on the podcast. Yeah,
0: he could talk about stuff and I'm sure he won't face any repercussions or anything like that.
1: Well, there's still a lot of life in the Chinese film industry, though. Uh, there's Detective Chinatown. There's uh, Operation Red Sea. <laughs>
0: I mean, uh, that next Troy Hark film, if that's not the death knell, I don't know what is. Like, with all the new laws that recently popped up, it's seemingly impossible to make movies at all. Unless that director, Pang O-Chung, says you need to know the right executives that are in charge to be able to get your movie through. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic uh, Western media misinformation.
0: And as per usual, you can reach us at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. So our first letter goes, Dear Justin and Will, I'm a regular listener to your podcast and a big fan of your work. Last Russ Meyers episode, really interesting. Even though filmmakers and their works is your main subject, I would like to request a different topic. Please do an episode about the American film critic Manny Farber. Even though he coined the term underground cinema and became the first film critic to seriously discuss the works of Sam Fuller and Howard Hawks, Farber seems to be less read by the public, including me, than Pauline Kale or Andrew This seems to make his case more curious. Also, try to do an episode on John Cassavetes or Jacques Rivette. Keep up the good work. Best, Melvin. We've had Manny Farber on our list for
1: a long time. Yeah, I would love to do Manny Farber. I know we will soon. Manny Farber, I guess he's less red than Pauline Kael is, but I feel like his influence looms really large. And I also feel like just Manny Farber's taste, the things that he, he championed, you know, he's somebody who really championed both very high, high, high highbrow stuff like Chantal Ackerman and Michael Snow, as well as the filmmakers, the letter writer mentioned, Samuel Fuller, Howard Hawks, the really two-fisted kind of action stuff, B-movie stuff. I feel like that sensibility that he pioneered is so much more alive today than the stuff that Pauline Kael was championing.
0: I would also say he's not uh, read as much, I would say, because he's not as user-friendly as someone like Andrew Sarris or... Pauline kale
1: I agree. His writing can be difficult. It can be very dense and spiky. Well,
0: thank you very much for that letter. This week on our Patreon, what are we talking about, Will?
1: We will be talking about, we haven't recorded it yet, so I just assume we will be talking about one of the great Hong Kong films, one of the great pre-handover Hong Kong films, Jackie Chan's Drunken Master 2.
0: I mean, we've talked about Drunken Master 2 before, but... Will seeing it theatrically with someone that has never seen it before, so it'll give us another chance to tackle it once again.
1: I also feel like we haven't really talked about it in depth. We've talked about Jackie Chan, but we haven't, like, got into Drunken Master 2, really. And we
0: haven't because that's the one that everybody talks about. But listen, it's our turn up at the bat. We'll take a swing at it, right?
1: Uh, so, Justin, what are we doing next week?
0: Next week, we're going to be talking about Pam Greer. Yes, Foxy Brown herself. So,
1: which one should we talk about? Should we talk about Foxy Brown? What are the key ones?
0: Well, we we definitely got to talk about foxy brown or we could also talk about coffee those are the two like big jack hill ones that she started and i think we also have
1: to talk about jackie brown don't we yeah jackie brown's pretty definitive so
0: that's what we'll be doing next week and until then my name is justin the clue i'm
1: will sloan thanks for
0: listening neos back And he's better than before. None of that complicated stuff in the sequels about how the Chosen One is just a fiction created by a system, and it does is only a representation and has no actual real change. No, finally, we're gonna get to see Keanu Reeves kicking butt in the Matrix. Resolutions, resurrection.
1: The Matrix movies have never really meant all that much to me. I like I saw them when I was a kid. I, I have nothing against them, by the way. Like the first one's obviously really good, and some people love the sequels and that's great. Me? You love the sequels. I do love
0: the sequels. Uh, Only on a recent watch did I fall in love with the sequels.
1: But I was watching the trailer for this new one by uh, just one of the Wachowskis. Is it Lana or Lily? It's
0: Lana Wachowski who directed Solo this one. Right.
1: So I watched this trailer and I got to say it looks really good. It looks so much better than the trailers for these kind of movies normally do. It's got bright colors, really sharp visuals, interesting compositions, (laughs) you know, exciting (laughs) looking action. And
0: this will be going back and kind of correcting their homework, it feels, (laughs) just to make very clear what the message of The Matrix was before it got kind of, you know, uh, grabbed by the right wing as, you know, take the right pill. That's
1: right, because The Matrix, I mean, there are are a couple of different pills you can take if you want to interpret it. Obviously, the whole red pill thing has become a huge alt-right meme. But also, I know that The Matrix has really been reclaimed by trans viewers and trans critics as being like an allegory for coming out as trans. uh, I imagine that this new Matrix will probably lean a little more heavily into that.
0: Oh, it will deal with that very directly, I bet. There will be no kind of like... Going around it, or even like in the original, they wanted a character who I believe was male, then represented as female in the Matrix. But the studio like said, no, no, don't do that. It's a little uncomfortable. None of that anymore. I'm sure that uh, Lana is going to be completely unleashed in this. I
1: saw someone on Twitter say that it's funny that Neil Patrick Harris, who's sort of like a symbol of gay assimilation, is cast as this repressive psychiatrist in the trailer. It was at Cappy Baroness who said that. I just want to give credit
0: i do like the fact that the movie's coming out in december and i have no idea what it's about and i feel like they're never really going to give you a trailer that tells you the story of it yeah
1: yeah that's right
0: because that was kind of the story about the original matrix is that people didn't really know what it was until they sat down and watched is it.
1: lawrence fishburne in this new one i didn't he s- is
0: not in this one. one oh no.
1: come on that's too bad by the way justin did we ever talk about the trailer for cry macho the new clint eastwood movie no we did not i've been seeing the tv commercials all week they've bought a lot of tv commercials during the time slot for jeopardy i guess they realize that old people are their audience
0: <laughs> they realize they know that old people are their
1: audience and of course i'm really excited for cry macho but something i love about the trailer for it is i think i think clint eastwood's had a little bit of work done uh I think, you
0: think so it looks like he has eyes straight out of battle angel alita yeah <laughs> they are massive yeah
1: yeah yeah it's like Obviously, like maybe a little bit of Botox, but I also think they might have Irish manned his face a little bit.
0: Why would they do that, though? Does he look too
1: old? I don't know. I mean, maybe Clint still has a little bit of vanity in his old age and God bless him. He's
0: over 90 years old. I mean, uh, we're both excited for Cry Macho. We will definitely probably do an episode on it when it comes out. Yes. Because like every new Clint Eastwood film, we have to talk about it as if it's the last Clint Eastwood film.
1: I mean, I genuinely think he's only got a few left after this, and I think that's (laughs) very sad. Only a
0: few left.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think probably less than 10, honestly.
0: Uh, If you'd say that, I have to go over. So more than 10, I feel like he has. Well,
1: I win either way.
0: Yeah. (laughs)